Daniel Bader, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's great to have you in, finally. Yeah, thanks, Jake. Thanks for having me. I'm excited to be here. I think um, what we can maybe start off the podcast, since this is the first time back after the summer, uh, first episode, I don't even know what number we're on right now, but <laughs> we spoke a little bit coming back to school about your summer and some of the things you did, some of the adventures you had, and kind of just curious about catching up about that with you and uh, maybe what it's like to be back in the building this year so far. Yeah. Yeah. Thanks. I'm, I'll start from the bottom up on that. Being back in the building is great. It's cool to see the kids again. It's exciting to get that energy again. Um, over the past 18 or so months, that's really been missing. And even though I'm not in the classroom and with the kids every day, you feel that um, on a daily basis. And so to, to have the kids back, to have the teachers back, even though they're masked up, it feels really good. Um, Jeff Gulan was talking the other day about how he knew it was time to, or he knew school was back in session. It was a good thing because the conversations we were having were about like dress code violations and schedule issues. It wasn't about like COVID testing and, and outbreak cases. So it was just a really normal feeling. Mm -hmm. Um, you know, the big difference right now, it feels like is masks. And if that's our biggest issue, I think we're doing pretty well. So that feels pretty good. Um, our world doesn't change a ton in the development department when the kids are in session, it's a little more busy because more people are around, but generally speaking, we kind of keep going all year round. Mm -hmm. um, but for me personally, and I think probably for a lot of people, uh, the summer was a great time to get away and, and recharge. Gilman told us we could work remotely, so I took them at their word and uh, I bought a camper van, a 20-foot Dodge Ram Promaster, and packed my two dogs up and drove around the country for two full months. Two months? Wow, yeah. I didn't know it was that long. Yeah, so left here in early June, and came back once briefly and left again, um, but was really gone for two full months. And I think I drove about 7,000 miles. I ended up actually getting tennis elbow in my right arm from driving so much. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I've been seeing uh, Nick and Kristen in the training room to get a little treatment on that. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Did that get um, – so driving across the country is something that I've been thinking about doing a little bit. My my mom drove my younger sister out, I've told you this, to Seattle. Yeah, yeah. Uh, we're, they ran into Dan Christian in Iowa City, and then we got him on the podcast. But they did that, and I, I've been thinking about doing it. Was it what was it like by yourself with your dogs yeah. to drive through states and different places? Um, so, just by way of backstory, this is like the twelfth time I've driven across the country. So it's sort of become old hat at this point in a way. Um, on the other hand, the last couple times I've done it, it's been like a straight run, cannonball run, kind of leave and get there as fast as you can. Yeah. This was much more about like, what can I see and what places can I go that I haven't been before? Um, so I, you know, uh, take you back, like back in 1996, I was a sophomore at Middlebury College. Um, a buddy and I got jobs working on a dude ranch in Wyoming for the summer. So in May of that year, we piled in my little Toyota pickup truck and just headed west. And I think like I had been out of Baltimore and out of Maryland a couple times for lacrosse tournaments or family trips or whatever, but never really like explored and I think literally and, and metaphorically, that trip like really opened my eyes to the wider world out there and got me excited about travel and exploring and like seeing new cultures and new people. Um, I think the highlight moment of that trip was we drove out to the Badlands in South Dakota, got in late at night. So it's pitch black everywhere. And we have no idea what the Badlands are, or what they look like. Wake up the next morning and it's just red rocks and these crazy formations like as far as the eye could see. That's and cool. that like image has been seared in my in my head uh, you know, since, you know, for 20, whatever, five years now. Um, and I think it's kind of fueled a thirst for travel and, and exploration. So um, back to this summer, this was a little bit more, 
targeted, I guess. So I left from here, went through Western New York, down through Chicago, up through um, Wisconsin, across Michigan's Upper Peninsula, back down through Michigan's Lower Peninsula, and then beeline back to Massachusetts, Vermont, Maine, and New York before coming like home. That. And part of that was dog-oriented. I was I planned on heading out to the Southwest, so that would be a little too hot with the, the hounds out there. Yep. So did this kind of Northeast and North Central trip, and I just thought, like, Michigan is a hidden star. You know, I know a lot of people from the Chicago area go up there, and it's a little hard to get to from here because even if you fly, you still have to drive a long ways. But if Michigan's like a, a hand, you know, mm -hmm. this, like, pinky area of it, the northwestern point, um, is just phenomenal. I mean, hiking, biking, swimming. You're on Lake Superior, but there's all these inland lakes, and, like, lake life is everything there. Everybody's got a porch and a dinghy or a boat or a water ski or something, and, like, they just kick it, and it looks magical. I mean, it is just stunningly beautiful. I'm sure coming up in a couple months, it gets pretty darn cold. Yeah. But in the summer, man, it is terrific. And I, I loved being up there. I was biking and swimming in the, in the lakes with the dogs and did a little hiking. I mean, it was just fantastic. What? Um, why did you settle on that? Like, what, where did that decision come from to go through Michigan and find that as, like, a hidden gem in the Midwest? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, luck i guess yeah. part of it um so last summer we had had the chance to work remotely too i was going to move to colorado for the summer just for fun and I actually fell for a scam on craigslist where i sent a guy a thousand bucks to, to no rent an apartment yeah turned out to be some jerk somewhere off and ate my money worst part about that was not actually going it was having to admit to my parents who i lecture all the time about cybersecurity that yeah. i had fallen for it um so i think when that didn't happen i uh I just kind of kept in the back of my head, I want to do something. When they said we could work remotely, I was like, this opportunity isn't going to come again. I thought about trying the Colorado thing again and was like, you know, I just kind of have my same life just in Colorado. And kind of in the interim there, I had sort of fallen in love with this like van life idea and uh, decided to take a swing at it. So I bought the van. And then because I didn't want to go to the Southwest, um, the Northeast and North Central looked more appealing, a little mm -hmm. cooler. Mm -hmm. um, and a couple of people sort of independently told me Michigan was awesome. You should go there. And I said, well, hey, yeah. I'll go. <laughs> yeah. Word of mouth. Yeah. It's yeah, yeah. funny because I hadn't heard about van life before this summer, really. I didn't really know what it was all about or what it was even. Yeah. But I went out to San Diego uh, with a couple of friends from high school and met up with a friend from college. And he, I knew he was in San Diego and he was from San Diego, but he rolls up in, in his van that he had built out. And oh, he did it himself. He did it himself. Wow. And he was driving up, I think, the coast of California this past summer, but he was in San Diego at the time and might've been in between jobs or something, just doing this for a couple months or yeah, something. Yeah. And it was, it was amazing. My, one of my friends was like, like, dude, where do you shower? Like, what He's like, you're looking at it, the ocean's right yeah, there. Yeah. He goes surfing, comes back to his van, he bumps, bops around. It's pretty cool. It is. You know, there there are moments where it is a real challenge. Like you're always getting water and cleaning something. And the van flooded a couple times because my spare water tank spilled. And so the dogs and I are just covered in crap. Um, but I also had a night up in Michigan again where I went to bed and had the big door of the van open saw the sunset at like 930 because you're basically, you know, as far north as Scandinavia. Um, but the sunset at 930 out of one window of the van, woke up and the sun rose at 530 out of another window. That's like, so cool. You know, how do you get that experience on, on land? You know? Right. 
in an apartment. So, so what about for food? Like, was there a fridge in there? And would you usually eat? How does, how does that all work? It actually worked out great. Yeah, there's a fridge in there. It looks like a cooler, but it's plugged in and uh, holds, you know, bread and, and turkey and uh, beer if you need a, a refreshment along the way. <laughs> and um, had a, like a, a separate kind of pantry area for dry goods. Uh, my van didn't have like an indoor cooking area. So I had a camp stove I would just plop out. Um, and I would generally set up camp for a couple of days so I could kind of expand. What they say is like, you're not living in the van, you're kind of living out of the van. You know, so you have all your stuff outside and I can cook outside and that made it a lot nicer. So I was, you know, my, my diet was pretty normal, all things considered. Mm -hmm. um, and I would go grocery shopping every three or four days and get new supplies. And I think you tend, kind of like camping, you tend to eat more carbs than you would. You're not getting a ton of like fresh produce and, and, uh, and meats and stuff like that. But other than that, it was fairly normal. Yeah. And I was generally in spitting distance of a grocery store or restaurant if need be. So I would treat myself for a, for a thing here or there. Was it hard, I guess, you know, you're with your, your dogs, but was it hard kind of being on your own? And did you have much interaction with other people on a daily, weekly basis? Or what was that part of the experience like for you? Yeah, I mean, I think there were parts of it that were lonely yeah. um, at times, and it, it probably went through a, some ups and downs with that. Um, particularly in the second half of the trip, I ended up seeing a lot of friends along the way. So when I went to Massachusetts, I hooked up with a couple of friends from uh, from college and, and beyond. Same up in, um, in Massachusetts, I saw my family for a week. So I made a point to kind of visit with people. Um, when I was doing sort of the Western leg and more of the van life and stuff, it was much more on my own. It, I kind of enjoy that, yeah. but it does get a little lonely at times. The dogs are not great conversationalists. Um, good companions, not great, at, <laughs> not great at chatting. Um, did you uh, did you journal at all? Did you write some part of this experience down? Because I feel like you're it's like the modern day Thoreau, yeah. like Wal Walden Pond, 2021. Yeah, far from that. But uh, <laughs> I did a little journaling, you know, a little exploring. I think what I I thought I was going to have more time to just kind of sit and think and be an experience um, and reflect. What I found is, is it's much more like camping than road tripping. Like you're always just doing something. Mm -hmm. And by the time you're not, you don't want to write. You just want to like snooze or relax or go for a swim. Like, yeah. Um, so I didn't do as much of that as I thought I would. Um, but uh, but did a little writing, you know, here nice. and there. Nothing uh, <laughs> publishable or, or yeah. worth sharing, but did a little. Um, I know I had some like reflections and thoughts on the past 18 months or whatever when I was I went to Montana this summer too yeah. and I was surrounded by similar like beautiful mountains and landscapes and all of that and it was easy to kind of wind down and reflect on COVID and everything did you is there anything that came out of this two months experience about like COVID and everything that happened that was um, interesting for you to think about or enlightening in any way Hmm. You know, I think one thing I realized, and I guess this was right as a, about the time I was leaving. Um, so this doesn't directly answer your question, but I think it's kind of interesting, at least to me, um, was right around the time of you, as I was getting ready to leave, the world was starting to open up a little bit. This is kind of May, June of, of this year. And you start thinking, in theory, you should be feeling pretty optimistic at that point. I found myself being really sad and, and, and frustrated and short with people. I couldn't quite square why that was. And I think what I had done is for like the previous 12 or whatever, 14 months, I just bottled up so many emotions of anger, sadness, frustration, disappointment, fear, 
anxiety um, and all these. And then they just came bubbling out like mm -hmm. at weird times and weird ways. And, you know, so on one hand, you feel like you should be so optimistic. The world's returning to some semblance of normal and opening up. But I was feeling the opposite. And so it took me a while to kind of square that that uh, dichotomy of, of like I'm feeling one way, but should be feeling another way. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's I think that's pretty natural for everyone. And I'm seeing a little bit with some of the students mm. um, just because. I think there's been such a dark cloud over everyone's head for so long that it, the re-entrance is, you know, not as easy as you would think because you've been kind of at your house and, you know, not really as active or interacting with people on a daily basis as we are now, which has been awesome. It's been nice, but there's definitely some residue, some after effects yeah. of COVID. Um, and I think along with that, I think there's like a an athletic mindset to some of this stuff where you're like, I'm just going to put my head down and grind. I'm going to get through this. And then I'll be okay because that's sort of what you do when you're running or biking or you know whatever. Um, but when you do that, you ignore all of those emotions or you, you push away all those feelings, and then they do come out at, at weird times. And as you said, it's kind of a residue that you kind of want to shower and like wash it off somehow. Yeah. Um, so that trip sounds awesome. I mean, two months, and what was it like coming back and, and getting <sighs> your bearings i guess under you as we started the year in person and yeah. things have kind of been somewhat normal wearing masks around school but has it felt like a fresh start for you this year a little bit it feels a little like getting off a boat where like you know you get that feeling where you're like still a little wobbly because you got your sea <laughs> legs and then you know you're on steady land it felt a little bit like that because i was so itinerant yeah you know I, I wasn't sleeping in my own bed or in my own house and um, I was used to moving every couple of days and then to all of a sudden be back in one place was a little bit uh, constricting. Mm -hmm. And I felt myself kind of chafing at the at the rules of society a yeah. little bit. Yeah. Um, so that took a little bit of an adjustment. Um, and I think, too, I was wiped, man. I was so tired. Like the first week I was home, I just basically slept. It felt like, you know, came to work, went home and crashed. Um, there's so many logistics that go into like living the van life. Where am I going to sleep? What are we going to eat? Have the dogs been out? You know, is it too hot for them mm -hmm. to be? Is there any place I can go biking? Yeah, um, you're just always kind of wheeling and dealing. Was that on a daily basis that you were trying to figure out what, what you were doing for that night? Or had you mapped all that stuff out prior? Or is it kind of like a rough sketch of what you were trying to do? I think it was mostly like a rough sketch. Yeah. And I'd have kind of ball, uh, points of like, hey, I need to be here by a certain date. Or I want to be there by a certain date. But some of the details in between were left to be filled in. Um, and especially on the tail end of the trip, I got just kind of lazy about planning. I was like, oh, I'll figure it out. Yeah. And so I think some of that is my own doing, right? That I, I made the bed and have to sleep in it. But uh, it's kind of nice to have it spontaneous too. It's like figure out, figure it out. It's part of the experience, I think, a little bit. Absolutely. Yeah. Definitely part of the adventure. Yeah. Um, so I think what we can get to in this podcast episode is development and some of the things that you do here at Gilman in the development office, because I'm sure there are people, students and even some adults too, who are like the office is there and I know that it's important and I've heard about it. And I know Daniel and I know some people in the office, but what exactly is going on in there on a daily basis and what, what's like the nitty gritty of a, you know, day in the life of someone in, in development here at Gilman. Yeah, it's, it's a great question. I still wonder about that myself. <laughs> um, so we're like a, I think a 10 or 12 person staff up in the, sit on the top floor of the Lumen Center. Um, and uh, collectively, I think we raise about two and a half to $2.8 million a year, which is a, a huge number. 
Um, and it accounts for actually about 8% of the school's budget. So the school, uh, every year the school forecasts a, a, a shortfall in its revenue. Um, so between tuition and other revenue sources, that, that amounts to about 92% of what we spend every year. So the Gilman Fund and some of the other fundraising we do uh, throughout the year, that accounts for that extra 8%. So it really is vital to the lifeblood of the school. Um, there's all sorts of like specific um, uh, funds and, and, and um, targets for some of the fundraising. But generally speaking, it kind of helps to fill that gap between what the school spends and what the school brings in. Mm -hmm. So it is really critical. Um, I like to joke I'm the one person in the department who doesn't have to actually ask for money. I try to make people feel good about the school and their relationship and make them feel connected to one another and to the institution. And over the long term, our hope is that when you feel good about a place, you're going to want to support that place. And I think that's kind of where um, development and alumni relations kind of really are, are at their best. I think in the corporate world, it would be sort of like I'm the marketing arm to a sales team mm -hmm. kind of thing where you want people to be engaged. You want people to be knowledgeable about what's going on. You want people to be um, connected and by doing that, they might buy a product. Um, in this case, they might support the school. Um, so what does that look like on a daily basis? It kind of changes pretty often. I'm a semi -pro I've become a semi-professional party planner. Um, we have our annual reunion uh, cycle where every five years, people in reunion classes come back to campus to celebrate their, their milestone reunions. Then we do a bunch of regional events where we go out to see alumni in different areas. Obviously, those kind of things have all been on pause and are starting to restart again um, through COVID. But that was, that's a big part of what we do every year. Um, and then we have uh, a couple other sort of ways of connecting with, one, uh, with, with alumni. We have, we have an alumni board of governors, 30-person group or so of alumni from 1964 through 2014, who sort of serve as a communication vehicle between the school's alumni and the school itself, sharing information from the alumni base to the school and then taking information from the school back to the alumni base. Um, so I'm sort of the staff liaison for that group, and they meet five times a year. Malcolm Ruff, class of 02, is this year's president. Great guy, does a great job with the group. Um, captivating speaker. I think he's destined for huge leadership <laughs> things in the world beyond Gilman as well. Um, and, uh, and then we do some other sort of one-off events, whether it's a wrestling uh, affinity or wrestling um, celebration around the Gilman duels. We're going to do an alumni lacrosse game in, in November. Um, we have an affinity group for entrepreneurs that we'll do a webinar on in, in October. Um, we have a Black Alumni Society who wants to do some events um, to encourage black alums to re-engage with the school. So it's sort of a any connection point we can find with people to, to re-engage with the school we look for and then try to, try to develop the relationship through that. Um, what are some ways that, I guess, um, you like personally, like, feel that you can like reach people who might have been disconnected with the school or graduated a while ago and they're doing something else. Maybe they're, you know, invested in their career or their families and maybe they've forgotten about Gilman a little bit yeah. in, in some ways. How do you like draw them out and bring them back um, to contribute to the school? Yeah, it's a great question. And I, if I had a really good answer for it, I'd be really good at my job. Well, you uh, are. No, no, uh, I'm learning. Um, <laughs> So I have one thing going for me that was just by good fortune, having gone here for 12 years yep. and having gone here from the mid 80s to the early 90s, um, I crossed paths with a lot of people or know of a lot of people or know somebody who knows that person. And so that level of connection helps a lot. Yep. It just breaks down walls. It makes for a much easier introduction. The fact that I was here when Mr. Finney was here, 
In fact, I was here with Mr. Bristow and Mr. Christian and Mr. Holly were all here. Mm -hmm. That's a huge asset for me. And, and I don't mean that like a, I'm manipulating the situation, but it just makes a conversation so much easier because we can lean on a shared experience of saying, hey, you know, did Mr. Finney ever did th do this to you? Or what about the time Coach Holly did this? You know, there's just that natural level of conversation. Um, and I would say 95% of the time when I reach out to somebody say, hey, could you speak to some students? Or would you take a call with an alum who's interested in your field? 95% of the time they say yes. Yeah. It's very rarely that I have someone who says, no, I'm not interested. Yeah. Um, and even if it's someone who's had a bad experience or has a bone to pick with me or with our office or with the school, I found that if I just listen and shut my, my pie hole for a minute, mm -hmm. that's often enough. They kind of just want to vent. They want to know that their voice is being heard and they want to know that someone cares what they think. And that's a that's been, I think, the, the biggest lesson I've learned is, you know, talk less, listen more is is really a, a great way and skill for life probably yeah um and this podcast is showing i'm not good at it <laughs> but uh it, it's been a huge asset um to my role yeah and you obviously had such a positive powerful experience as a student going to gilman that would motivate you or make you want to stay involved with the school and work here and bring alumni back and and keep this whole place together people who are here now and outside of uh you know, the present day Gilman, keep everyone connected with each other. Maybe we could talk about like what made your experience or some people who made your experience here at Gilman so positive and enriching to you. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, you know, so one, two caveats. One, I went to Gilman for 12 years, so it's all I know. So it wasn't like I have something else to judge it against. Um, so the, it was undoubtedly a positive experience. It wasn't without its challenges or, or warts or whatever you want to call it. Um, and then two, I did, when I left for college, I didn't stay great in, touch, in great touch with Gilman for hmm. a while. And it's only been really since I've come back to Baltimore in the last 10 years and re-engaged with the school before starting to work here again that I've really, my, my appetite and appreciation for it has really increased dramatically. So that's a, an interesting thing just to remember sort of on the, on the back end. Um, I think what made Gilman special, and I think it's still what makes Gilman special today, it's not like the education, it's not the sports um, per se, it's the people in the halls that like, that's what makes it sing and dance. You know, I don't remember uh, the record of my football team, but I remember Coach Bristow and, and interactions I had with him and same with basketball and, and Coach Holly and lacrosse and Coach Tucker, like those relationships are what stand the test of time. You know, going back to this, this uh, Van trip I took this summer. I get up to Acadia National Park in Maine. Stunningly beautiful. Love that place. Yeah. I'm flipping through Facebook one day. I see that a classmate, Alex Katz, is in Bar Harbor or on the on Mount Desert Isle. So I'm like around the corner from Acadia. He's posting all these pictures of cycling. I've gotten into cycling in the last couple of years. Send him a quick message. Hey, I'm going to be there next where I'm, I'm here. You know, can we get together and ride? And he says, oh, I have, uh, you know, I can't ride tomorrow, but when you come by the place, we'll go canoeing. I drive out to his house. We hop in a canoe, me and him and his two daughters. We go paddling around this like idyllic place in Maine, just outside of Acadia. Uh, he convinces me to jump off a rock that's like 20 feet high. I'm terrified <laughs> of heights. He's a former college diver, so he like you know has this perfect no splash dive in, and it's just this amazing experience. Alex and I hadn't seen each other in 27 years, mm -hmm. and yet we can pick up right there in the middle of Acadia National Park and have this wonderful time. I think that's to me encapsulates a lot about Gilman. It, 
that we didn't know the details of one another's life. There wasn't this huge drop off of like, so, you know, who are you and where are you? There's this deep rooted connection and desire to kind of learn and, and, um, and, and reconnect with one another. And, and I'll say um, that's one of the biggest pros, biggest benefits of social media that I think, and I, I think about all that's wrong with social media and in, Instagram specifically is yeah. like, I'm, I have so many mixed opinions on it. Cause I don't, I really don't like Instagram that much, but the one thing that it, that it does is like when you're somewhere, when you're in the middle of Maine, when you're at Acadia national park yeah. and you see he's there too, you can reach out to him and have that experience. So if you didn't have that, you might not have, might not have known that. Absolutely. Um, so I think, I think social media has many flaws as there are with it. Like it really helps you for what you do and like touching base and keeping track of people. Oh yeah. I mean, we were talking about an issue yesterday where I was talking to a guy in the class of 2010 and they have a reunion coming up this fall. And he said, well, hey, it just looks like nobody knows about it. And I was like, well, we sent them a postcard in the mail, like a hard copy postcard that they would get out of the mailbox. We've sent a couple emails. How could they not know about it? He's like, well, you know, I posted on their fa our Facebook page and all of a sudden everybody's talking about it. And I think that's part of my challenge, right? Is like, I'm an older school guy, you know, where email to me is like, that's our, our mode of, of connection and, and conversation. But for him, it was like social media is the way to get the word out. And I need to constantly remember that, that like we have alumni going back to the 1940s, you know, so their communication style is so different than the guys who are graduating this year. Right. And, you know, to try to figure out how to cater our messaging to them so we can reach them and, and stay involved with them is, is really hard, but also really important. Yeah. And it changes so fast too, because like Facebook is big with my parents and some people a little bit older than I am, but I don't have a Facebook. I'm not on there. And I know I, these high school guys in my classes aren't on. They don't even really, they've never had a Facebook. Yeah. And they're barely even on Instagram. They're all on TikTok. So like trying to keep up with the social media trends just to reach people is I think part of it too, right? Oh I my mean, God, yeah. Um, I actually had a little art business before coming back to work at Gilman and it was just me basically. And the biggest challenge I had was how to spend my time marketing. You know, should I send emails? Should I post on Facebook? Should I do Instagram? And if you're trying to do all of that for a single person who's also trying to make the orders and, and build the projects and ship them out and do events, you don't have a lot of time. Yeah. So as that, that, you know, the it social media piece moves, companies, schools, whatever, are constantly trying to reevaluate, like, where should we put our resources so that we can reach people? Even though we know it's going to move away from us soon, it's just like this ongoing challenge. Yeah. You know, you feel like you're chasing a fart in the wind almost. <laughs> <laughs> um, tell me a little bit about your art business and how that started because I've always we've talked since I first met you about that and I've been fascinated by it 36 letters correct yeah exactly so 36 letters came from 26 letters and 10 numbers too um, it I called it photo letter art for lack of a better name name but it meant that I took pictures of objects that looked like letters and then framed it together to spell words and um, it started actually it's kind of coincidental timing now with this most recent earthquake in Haiti but back in 2010 there was a huge earthquake in Haiti I, had a sis I have a sister who at the time was at Bryn Mawr and her classmates were all um, required to develop a piece of art that they could auction off and the proceeds would go to support the victims of the earthquake. Mm. So we were walking around downtown one day and we saw someone who did something kind of like this and we said, oh, we could do that. So we dragged my dad around one morning with a, with a camera, took a bunch of pictures, spelled out hope for Haiti and sent it off to, um, to their show. And it just kind of stuck in the back of my head couple years later, I didn't have Christmas presents for my family members. 
So I, anybody who owned their own home at the time, I spelled out their address in that same kind of style. And this one is actually, that's closer to what I did um, most recently. And everybody loved it. And they said, oh, you should sell these. So a couple years later, I opened a little Etsy shop and, uh, and sold a, a, I mean, when I say a small amount of, of pieces, I mean like a micro small amount of pieces. Um, but again, it just kind of stuck. And I've always had sort of an interest in photography. And I think I, I have a pretty good eye for photography. Um, don't have some of the skills of, of Photoshop that some folks have, but I think I have a pretty good eye for framing and setting a picture. And um, that, I think, was what drove my interest in it. And then in 2014, I was working at U.S. Lacrosse. I was overseeing our national lacrosse teams, and I just kind of burned out. And so relatively abruptly, I just quit mm -hmm. um, without a real plan of what I was going to do. Um, I went out to Lock Raven Reservoir in, uh, in Baltimore County, I went for a hike and I was like, I'm going to figure out what I'm going to do and how I'm going to get my next job. And like 15 minutes in, I got stuck on this letter art idea and I kind of wrote a business plan in my head, um, came down. I started a Kickstarter campaign, raised a little bit of money to kind of get off the ground. And for four years, that's what I did full time was make photo letter art. And wow. uh, yeah, it was awesome. I mean, it, it's crazy to me to think that like, here's a dumb jock from Gilman. <laughs> you know, with no training in art or business, who's sold thousands of pieces that are now hanging on people's walls around the world. I mean, around the world. So there's a few that are international, yeah. but like mostly in the States. And that's just like so cool. I mean, I, th I think you probably think about this too, but I think a lot about like legacy and what will I be remembered for? And like when, when I die, will people kind of, what will they have to remember that I was here? Mm -hmm. And to know that there's like artwork hanging on the wall <laughs> in someone's house is just so wild to me. And so- it's very cool. Yeah, it's flattering and, and exciting and and, uh, and neat. And it started, I think where I saw the biggest evolution, sorry to go on and on, but um, at first it was just friends and family buying it. And that was nice. They were supporting me. Yeah, yeah. And then soon I saw that strangers were buying it. And, but I still knew or met most of the strangers who bought it. And then it was real strangers who I've never met in my life who are anywhere in the country who are buying it. And that's when I was like, well, this is really neat. You know, it's really, it's out there. And the way that you reach the strangers is through Etsy. And I don't really know too much about that site, that website. Yeah. So Etsy is sort of a craft arts festival online. Um, I, it was Etsy at first and I switched to my own website later on just because there's a customization piece that you could do on my site that you couldn't do through Etsy. Um, but it's a it's an online crafts community. You could sort of say if I wanted a, a hat that said, you know, best dad ever, mm -hmm. you could get that or, you know, worst dad ever, whatever it is. Yeah. I'm sure there's someone making it on Etsy or if you need like a, a flowered napkin made from silk. All kinds of things yeah, on there. I, I mean, yeah. Everything you've never thought you needed is on Etsy. Yeah. Hmm. Um, and did you just walk around with an iPhone? Did you have a legit camera that you used? And was that like for four years when you were doing this, was that your like day to day? You would just walk around, try to figure out what objects and things look like letters and then putting all that together. Was that kind of what the. Yeah, that's a big part of it. You know, you're kind of an artistic guy or like a creative guy. So I think you can kind of appreciate this. But early on, what drew me into it? was that I love taking the pictures. I love finding new letters. You know, some letters are much easier to find than others. And when you find that Q, which is impossible to find in nature, you know, one of my big things was no letter could be manipulated or staged. It had to be found object. Oh, I like that. Um, so you couldn't take a piece of rope and swing it around. So it had that little uh, crossing point in a Q. You had to find the Q and that's really hard. Um, Where'd you find the cues? I'm curious. <laughs> now, I'm, now I'm on it. Where, yeah, where of course, I don't have my from? website, but I can send you some examples. But um, 
there are is an amazing richness of metalwork in the Baltimore area, whether it's on fence posts or railings and banisters or under um, chairs and, and benches. That was like a treasure trove of hard to find letters and, and numbers, R's, mm. Q's, stuff like that. I could often find in there. I mean, I had only three or four Q's as where I might've had 70 T's. Yeah. Um, was there a specific place that you went exploring or walking to do this? Or would you f- try to find a different area of Baltimore every single time? And did you go outside of Baltimore in these four years? Good questions. Um, <laughs> it started in Federal Hill because that's the first place we walked. Fells Point became a go-to place. Um, and then sometimes I would just go on a couple hour letter walk and, and try to find them. Um, and then as the business evolved, I, I would, whenever I travel, I try to find a new letter. So have the Golden Gate uh, Bridge as an H and have some pictures from uh, Nantucket and in Massachusetts and uh, even a couple international ones from Iceland from, uh, oh, cool. from trips I've taken. So yeah, I found like the mud on the bottom of my shoe. So picture like the cleat of a shoe and then some icy mud fell out. It had like an orangish color and it made a perfect day. Wow. Yeah. So, you know, when you're looking for it, you find it. Yeah. Uh, but back to one of your questions. So what got me into it was the interest in the photography and the finding the letters. If you do that all day, you're not going to sell anything. And I think that's a challenge for any creative is like, how do I draw that line between making the art and mm-hmm. selling the art? Mm-hmm. And so increasingly, as I decided I wanted to keep the lights on and not and have some dinner to eat in the fridge, I found I had to focus more on the business side than on the art side. And that was a different approach. I, I actually liked it. I liked the challenge of trying to, to find to have the business flourish, but it was very different than the challenge of making the art. Mm-hmm. And so what you, what I did, and I think probably what some folks in a similar um, place would do is sort of find a thing that works and then figure out how to sell it. And what I found is there are a lot of locovores here, people who love Baltimore. And so I have a bunch of stock pieces that, you know, most people would do their name or their sports team or their address or their business or whatever. But I had a bunch of stock pieces at Baltimore or Ravens or yep. Orioles yep. Or, or Charm City. And people love that because they love Baltimore. And then for the for those, I could tell you where each letter was taken. So the B was a was a box spring in Butcher's Hill and the U was a uh, was a um, swing set in Hamden and the M was a ladder to get into the harbor in Fells Point. So being able to tell that story with the piece of art made it really special for people. Um, and that allowed me to kind of sell it a little bit more and not have to focus on making the art as much. And would people reach out to you and commission a certain, I'm sure they would mm-hmm. commission like their name or someone for a gift. Yep. Was that kind of how it was done otherwise if it wasn't a stock yep. piece? So you yeah. could go on my website and you'd type in your name and then you'd click Got on it. the S and you'd see all the different S's. You'd click on the C and see all the different C's. You'd oh, click cool. on the O and see all the different O's. Oh, I like this one. I don't like that one. I want color. I don't want color. Oh, that's um, so cool. Yeah, and then it evolved to a couple larger scale pieces, which was really neat. Um, I did. Uh, I went through a small business program through Goldman Sachs, and our graduation ceremony was actually really neat. Uh, Lloyd Blankenfein from Goldman Sachs and Warren Buffett and um, Michael Bloomberg were all there, and they commissioned me to do a uh, three foot by eighteen foot version of my Baltimore sign that hung over center stage. Wow! And was right there as those guys are speaking to the audience. That's so cool. It was, it was pretty special. Yeah. Wow. So this was big time. Uh, it was a little time with a few flash moments of feeling like it could have been big time. Did um, and, and what made you kind of change directions after this, after the four years and kind of get into this, right? Yeah, Development yeah, came, exactly. After. 
I think there were two things. One was just purely financial. I was making enough money to keep the lights on, but not really to feel comfortable. Yeah. Um, and then two, I was working by myself 80% of the time. Right. And I was just in search of sort of a community yeah. um, to be a part of. And so when this job at Gilman came up, I said, I, I kind of know that community. I, I like those people. <laughs> um, and I had no background in alumni relations. Um, as I said earlier, I do have the blessing of being an alumnus, but um, they were willing to take a chance on me. And it's been a, a really good run since I think this is now my fifth year that we're starting on. So thinking back to your time at Gilman, who were some maybe coaches, teachers, even classmates who made Gilman special for you? And really when that job opened up, uh, really made you want to come back after maybe not thinking about it so much prior, but then when it came up, you're like, I want to, I want to get back to this community. Yeah. I mean, how much time do you have? <laughs> There's a laundry list. Um, I've, I've mentioned a couple uh, already. Mr. Finney jumping on desks when I was in lower school and coming into the weight room and like bench pressing the whole rack with his suit and tie on. Like, you know, th those are drilled into your memory. You just never lose those images. Um, Coach Holly uh, in basketball, he I was playing basketball. I forget why he wanted me to do it, but they were about to inbound the ball. And he said, step over the baseline, step over the baseline. I did, and I got a technical foul, and I got kicked out of the game. And the ref said to Coach Ali, he goes, Coach Ali goes, what is he, what, why is he getting kicked out of the game? You know, that's a legal move. It just draws the foul. And the ref goes, he's a football player masquerading as a basketball player. Get him out of here. Oh, my gosh. <laughs> Coach Ali tells the story much better than I do. But, like, you know, that moment kind of resonates. Um, played football for Coach Bristow before my senior year. I was an offensive lineman. Hard to believe I know now because the guys are significantly bigger. Yeah. But uh, we're jogging around the scenic uh, path. There used to be a, a chip path that went around the campus. And he said, I think we're going to use you at tight end some this year. You know, and here's an offensive lineman, never gets to touch the ball, thinking I might get thrown to. Last time we had that conversation, <laughs> yeah. never heard from him again on that. So, oh, like, yeah. that, that moment. But it sticks with you, you know? Yeah. Um, you know, so those, those are some of, like, the, the Gilman luminaries. There's others, though, like uh, – Don Rogers, I think you've had in here before. Yep. Um, Don used to say I had him from middle school math. And he would start a story by saying, so I says to myself, self, blah, 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 blah. And we'd go on with the story. And, like, it always got a laugh from the whole class. And, like, that was just Mr. Rogers being Mr. Rogers. Yeah. Um, He's a personality. I miss that guy. He was here my first year, but I I think he left after that. So yeah, I haven't that really right. seen him or touched base with him. But he's such a funny guy, personality. Totally. Totally. There's another middle school teacher, Ted Waters, who's now uh, doing great in the finance world and was a young teacher, not unlike yourself back then, middle school teacher. And I think I must have come into history every day and said, Mr. Waters, can we play football? And one time he just had enough of me and he's like, Thano, can we play history today? <laughs> like, <laughs> you know, so I think those memories are what stick with you. And it's, yeah. I'm sure I learned some stuff in the books and, and I, I was not a, I didn't apply myself to my studies as much as I should. I applied myself to the sports much more, but like those little vignettes, I just think are so telling of the relationships you build with your teachers and your, and your uh, coaches here. Yeah. I've said this to my English classes a little bit. It's funny what you re remember, like those, those like short kind of random moments that, you know, you're going to play tight end that you'll never never came to fruition you never played tight end but yeah. it still sticks out to you it's so interesting the way that you that that freezes in your mind totally and i have lousy hands so he, he made a good decision not to play me at tight end your eyes just lit up oh man who doesn't <laughs> want to catch a catch a pass yeah um 
So what was it like kind of, what was Gilman like during the time that you went here in comparison to what it's like today? And I think we've had people on the podcast, alumni, Ned Emla has been on here kind of talking about some of the traditions that maybe we, we had here um, back in the day, but we don't have anymore. Or some of the things that Gilman did and said and stood for back then that have been lost, but some other things that are still true today and haven't changed one bit. Has sledding on freshmen come up? Sledding on freshmen? We used to no. use freshmen as sleds to go down the hill by Harris Terrace. Yeah, it's probably not allowed yeah, anymore. <laughs> I think that's, that's frowned on. Um, you know, sledding I, on freshmen. Yeah. I think, and I say this in a positive way, Gilman today is a much more welcoming and encouraging and supportive place than it was mm-hmm. 27 years ago. Um, I think then, and maybe that was society, maybe it was Gilman specifically, maybe both, um, it was much more sort of a sink or swim mentality of if you got here, you should be able to cut it. So go do that. And most people were able to do so, but some fell through the cracks. And um, I think for, I was a athletic, smart enough white guy. I fit the majority on most accounts. And so Gilman was easy for me to fit in and to be a part of things. I imagine there are other people, I know there are other people who for whatever reason felt ostracized or left out or unincluded. Um, I will say, I don't think it was ever intentional. I don't think there were in, in policies, procedures, whatever, or people who were trying to push others away. Mm-hmm. It just was part of the fabric of the culture of it was very much do your stuff and, and, and move along, I guess. Um, and so that, again, there are probably people who, who felt a little left out. I think Gilman today is so warm and so welcoming and so supportive. Um, that I think it's a it's a very different environment in that regard. Um, but I think so much of it stays the same. The Gilman Five is new, but that's what we lived and talked about 30 years ago anyway. Mm-hmm. Maybe it wasn't called the Gilman Five. Maybe we didn't use all the exact same order of the words, um, but it was there. And it, it was what Mr. Finney embraced. It was what Mr. Montgomery carried from from there. Um, it's what Mr. Holly and Mr. Bristow and those guys and, and, and women all preached on a daily basis, it, it just kind of was imbued in you. Um, and same with the Gilman skills that we talk about today, about thinking creatively and, and creating and, and, and collaborating. That stuff was was all there. It just might not have been codified or um, articulated right. in the same way. So I think, you know, you, you can say Gilman's a different place today. It is. And that's probably a good thing. I don't think Gilman could exist as it did 30 years ago in today's world. But... I think the fabric of Gilman, the, the essence of Gilman has remained virtually unchanged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's one thing that I think about, too, is um, just how students today at Gilman, it's very hard for them to be left behind in, in a lot of ways. Um, kind of just coming in here as a teacher and comparing it to my high school, which is a public school, larger school. I had like 517 kids in my class, so wow. probably 2,000 and my high school, I feel like if you didn't really do well in your classes or do well on a test or you were struggling a little bit, it was easier for you to just be forgotten about because teachers had so many students and, you know, it's, it's pretty expensive. It's time intensive to like reach out to people and make sure that you're doing your, you're coming along and making up that test. Um, But here it was just amazing to see how someone in my class (laughs) doesn't have a, even a good day or fails a quiz or didn't read that day, 
so many people are involved after that one class, like, yeah. like advisor, other teachers, it's very close knit and people talk to each other all the time here. And it's very hard for someone academically, at least to be left behind or be forgotten about, which I think is a huge part of like the value of Gilman. Yeah. Um, yeah, I think some of the shenanigans that probably got away, we got away with 30 years ago probably don't fly <laughs> in the same way today. Yeah. Yeah. Um, what was it academically kind of like as a high school student at Gilman? And would, would you say it was that as intense academically as it is today or kind of what were your classes like when you went here? I mean, I, I think that every report card I had said something to the effect of shows great promise, should work harder. Yeah. So I might not be the best person to ask. I was a solid B student mm -hmm. um, and without trying to toot my own horn, could have been an A student, but just did not put in the work necessary to do that. I don't think I read a book cover to cover until my junior year of college. <laughs> um, <laughs> that, so got away with that here somehow I don't and I geez I hope uh, I don't get any English teachers in trouble as a result of that but uh, Mr. Christian who you brought up earlier is probably flipping over on his uh, his his uh, putting green right now <laughs> but um, I think it I think it was I mean the the joke was always you went to Gilman you went to Princeton you came back here and worked for Alex Brown well, you're not going to do that if you didn't have academic success and academic chops um, so I think that it was a competitive academic environment. And I think a lot of kids worked really hard to live up to that. Um, and then some kids like me coasted because they could, or because they were focused on other things or whatever. Um, but I think it was definitely a challenging academic, um, setting. And I think there were, um, some teachers, oh man, we haven't even talked about Mr. Schloter yet. But some teachers like Mr. Schloter and, and Dr. Thornberry, who like, they pulled out every ounce of academic chops that any kid had. And um, so, so yeah, I think you were pushed um, if you wanted to be, if you let them push you, I guess. Uh, and I mean that in a good way. Mm -hmm. um, you could, others like me somehow found a way to kind of knife between the, yeah. the challenge. But yeah, there I mean, there were wonderful teachers who, and, and students who did amazing things and have done incredible things since Gilman as, as a result of that. So you you mentioned Mr. Schloter and Mr. Dr. Thornberry, who I know pretty well, and I wanted to get on the podcast because he's a very interesting guy. I don't know Schloter as well, but um, who were maybe some of the teachers in addition to those two that really were memorable, like the athletic experiences, the athletic moments that you brought up in, in the classroom at school here? Yeah. Oh, man. Um, Mr. Christian was a legend. He, he still uh, reminds me of a ninth grade English project I did with Jake Beveridge. Uh, so this is going back to 1991, you know, 30 years ago. And it is, he talks about it as, it, you know, I know he talks about books as being living and, and you're, you're not, it's, it's not didn't happen. It, it is happening. Mm -hmm. But he talks about my English project like it's still happening. I think it was like a volcano exploding um, at the end of a Shakespeare sonnet or something. It, to me, it's unremarkable. But to him, it was just like encapsulated the spirit. And so I think Mr. Christian's one of those guys who could make any book interesting. His memory is unbelievable. It's like that yeah. podcast with him. I could, could not believe the things that he was just bringing up and reciting. And he's he's an impressive guy. He is. He is. Um, and there were others. There was a guy, David Noon, who I remember taking religion from. And I grew up in a pretty non-religious family, but he had a, such a deep knowledge and passion for the subject 
that I was inspired, you know, and, and it's hard to think of my 16 year old self as being inspired about anything. Mm -hmm. um, but I, you could just hear it when he talked about Yahweh, you, you could feel that energy. And it wasn't a preachy thing. It was an intellectual pursuit. And I, I think in a religion class in particular, that's a really hard needle to thread, right? You know, you're trying to share the information, but not make it a, um, uh, uh, not make it preachy, you know, not make it a, a, this is how you need to live your life kind of thing. And he, I thought he did that really well. We don't have religion classes anymore. Um, I'm curious, like when that when that went away and kind of what was like replaced that because I guess that's something that's different from when you were in high school and now is there aren't religious classes anymore. Religion's yeah. not a subject to take. Yeah, I don't know the answer to that. In yeah. fact, um, I think we have sort of a historical religion class that's an elective. Um, yeah, but I, that I think Aaron Goldman teaches. Yep. Um, and that's probably about it. Okay. And I, I honestly don't know the history of that. It's something we should look into. I wonder if mind, body, spirit, was that a part of the like Gilman motto when you were here? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I, mean, that, that, I think the mission statement with some editorial tweaks, it, it's been pretty consistent over time. Gotcha. Um, so great. I think we covered pretty much your your time here and some of the memories that stand out. Is there anything else that you kind of wanted to talk about or memories from your, your time or differences that you can think of? Or I'll just add one sort of fun part about coming back to Gilman and sitting on the other side of the desk, so to speak, yeah. is um, <clears throat> it's getting to work as colleagues with people who were teachers and coaches of mine 30 years ago. You know, so the fact that Tim Holly is here and Johnny Foreman is here and Dan Christian was here and people who had a formative impact on my young life to now see them as colleagues is is wild and exciting and, and fun. The hard part, though, is to go from calling them Mr. Christian, Mr. Holly, and Mr. Foreman to calling them Dan, Tim and Johnny. Yeah. And I, I could do it with Tim. I can't do it with Johnny Foreman. I still call him Coach Foreman anytime I see him. Just can't get past it. Um, and so you played football, basketball, and lacrosse. Here, yeah, correct. Okay. Yeah. Um, what was that experience like being three sport athlete? You're obviously very focused on your your sports, and you had some great coaches here. Um, how did that really help you kind of develop as a Gilman student, and then beyond? Yeah. Um, it's kind of funny, actually. So I, I think I was probably the best at football. I think I liked basketball the most, but I ended up playing lacrosse in college. So it's sort of like, it's funny how it works out like that. Um, but I was, I played three sports. I think in the 1980s, probably most kids were playing three sports. And then the late 80s, it kind of shifted. And by the early 90s, it was kind of down to two sports were the most, the majority of varsity athletes, at least. Um, so I think even then I was sort of a dying breed of, of the three sport athlete. For me, it was just like, A, I just loved playing sports. I mean, mm -hmm. it just was, it was fun. I loved being with my teammates. I loved competing. I loved the thrill of, of finding success in something. Um, I admitted I wasn't a great student. So to see my parents in the stands cheering for me because I did well, that was a, just a wonderful feeling of like um, uh, self-confidence and self-value and worth. Um, so that was really important. Um, but I think just the camaraderie of, of being on a team and going through those ups and downs. And we had good football teams and so-so football teams. And we had decent basketball teams and so-so basketball teams. And we had okay lacrosse teams and excellent lacrosse teams. You know, so to, to get that variety of experiences and, um, and to play a variety of roles. You know, in, in football, I became a, a very good, pretty good player. And, you know, was a captain of the football and basketball teams. 
in lacrosse. I had been a starter, but I actually got benched when we won the state championship my senior year. Hmm. Um, so to go through winning a championship, but kind of losing my, my starting position um, was hard. But it's a really important experience to, to live through and, and to understand that, you know, not everything is going to be peaches and ice cream. There are going to be days yeah. you're disappointed and you have to learn to get through that. Um, so I think that it's invaluable. You know, I, I learned 15 or 20 years later, you can have those same kind of experiences in a variety of venues. It doesn't have to be sports. I've, I've watched a lot of the theater productions here and at other schools. And those, those, those men and women now or kids then have the same thing. You know, you have to play a role and sometimes you want to be the star, but you're in the chorus and you got to learn all the dances and you got to learn all the songs. You got to learn all your lines. And if you screw up, you're making some, you know, making somebody else's job harder. And um, it's the same stuff. Just for me, sports were the the vehicle. Um, and because again, I, as I've said, you know, I was focused more on sports than on academics. It was, it was the vehicle. Right. Um, and so it was, it was instrumental in, into my growing up. And, you know, I, candidly, I think I've probably struggled with becoming an ex-athlete yeah. um, because for so long I defined myself as an athlete. Um, and that's been sort of a lifelong challenge. How did you decide to play lacrosse? If you loved football, basketball, maybe even more so than you loved lacrosse yeah. in high school, how did you decide to, to pursue lacrosse in college? I think there were two primary factors. One, I was 6'2", 210 pounds. So my basketball career was done. <laughs> and I was our center. Pretty bit. I mean, it's pretty. But not for a center. Oh, you know? a center. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and in football, I just wasn't getting any looks at, at colleges. Um, Middlebury had recruited me for lacrosse. And so that was sort of the, the path. I, I got recruited by a couple of schools for lacrosse. So that was sort of the path I, I took. Not really for any decision I made other than those were the options open. Um, and... Middlebury and some of the other schools that were interested in me are pretty good academic schools. So it made it a little easier to think about going to one of those and playing lacrosse rather than going to a less good academic school to play another sport that I might be more interested in. What was your experience like with lacrosse at Middlebury? And maybe how did you, I know you worked for U.S. lacrosse for a number of years. How did kind of that transpire afterwards? That's a good question. Uh, lacrosse experience in Middlebury was great. Um, I didn't become the player I had wanted to, and, and a lot of that falls on me. I didn't work hard enough in the offseason and on my fitness to to really do that. I, I got uh, enjoyed the social life of college. <laughs> <laughs> but being a part of the team was fantastic, and my teammates remain some of my closest friends from my college experience. Um, and the memories from college, similar to what we're talking about with Gilman, are many mostly centered around sports type experience. It's like shoveling the field because it snowed a foot a foot on April 18th, you know, mm -hmm. um, or a, a road trip to Bowdoin where we stopped at the same restaurant every year um, and would get you know frozen more frozen ice cream, frozen yogurt rather than you can um, fill in a pitcher. Um, so stuff like that that stands out is just like fun memories that uh, that hold up over time. Um, how did I kind of get into lacrosse for life? I guess was. I moved out to California soon after college and started working at a job doing uh, frontline support for a financial software company. And I was working East Coast hours. So I was out of there by 3 p.m. You know, a lot of time then in the afternoons and mm. um, uh, having gone to school on the East Coast and played lacrosse at, a, at an East Coast college, I kind of became a hot commodity for coaching. So pretty quickly I had people approaching me asking me to coach it. And this is early late 1990s, like 1998, 99. San Francisco? San Francisco, yeah, where their lacrosse team was really taken off. Yep. And they just needed people who knew a little bit about the sport to coach. So I coached a youth team for a year, coached at UC Berkeley for a year, um, 
and then coached at a high school for two years. And I was really enjoying that. You know, I found out I didn't like the financial software company stuff. I liked the coaching. Um, in being out there and doing it, I met a lot of people in the lacrosse world. Had an opportunity to go coach college lacrosse at Elmira College for a couple of years. Um, got my master's there while I was there. And so lacrosse kind of became this vehicle. And I bet two thirds of the jobs I've gotten in my life are through some level of lacrosse connection. Um, yeah, especially being from Baltimore, it's just amazing. If you're Baltimore, as small as it is already, is like everyone kind of knows each other here. I've kind of felt, and having the lacrosse too, it's just it, it's such a small world. It's a small world on top of a small world, almost. It is. It is indeed. Um, so that's great. So you went to Elmira for a couple of years, coaching yeah. there and doing the masters, and then after that is what is that when the sixteen. Uh, or the, sorry, the, the 36 letters. There were a couple of pit stops in between. I worked um, for a small nonprofit in Rhode Island briefly, worked for the NBA actually as a news desk editor for their website for a brief stint. Um, and then I got lured back to California and spent two years as the assistant athletic director at a high school in Los Angeles called Brentwood. Okay, um, I think I knew that. And when I left Brentwood, I came back here and got a job at US Lacrosse and was there for I think about five years. Interesting. <clears throat> yeah. So you've had the lacrosse lacrosse thread through the buzz yeah yeah it's it's wild to think that i've coached lacrosse at the youth high school or college level for some 20 years yeah so another question i was thinking about when you were talking about your athletic career at gilman and and then at middlebury um what was the best team that you've ever been on i mean i we won the state championship my senior year here uh, at gilman and had a bunch of guys who went on to who were all Americans and all whatever players here in Baltimore, um, and went on to be all Americans in college. So in terms of star-studded power, that's probably it. Lauren Smith was the best player on our team. Um, he went on to be a three-time All-American at Princeton and win a couple of national championships there. Uh, Mark Corns actually won the Kelly Award that year as the best player in Maryland for us. John Tucker was the coach. He's an all-everything player and coach. Um, a couple other guys went on to play college lacrosse. I think probably eight of the 10 starters played college lacrosse, um, if not more. Um, so I think that's probably the, the most, biggest bang for your buck. Yeah. Most talented and obviously best season. Yeah, yeah. And it, it was a cool time too because we hadn't been that good for that long. Um, the late 80s and early 90s were a tougher time. So my sophomore year, we weren't very good. My junior year, we were kind of sniffing at the playoffs. And then my senior year to kind of make that run was pretty awesome. In fact, we beat Boys Latin six to five. Their goalie uh, was a guy named Brandon Mollett, who actually became a teammate of mine at Middlebury, um, and is now a lifelong friend and and good uh, good good buddy. But um, to remind him of that goal that he missed uh, is a, is a fun opportunity. What was Tucker like as a coach? <laughs> I think the story that illustrates Coach Tuck to me the most is he would say things like, "I just don't get." Why you guys can't look over here and zip a pass behind the back to that guy who's wide open over there? And you're like, <laughs> I didn't know there was a guy over there. And what's this behind the back thing? You know, yeah. he just could do things that you couldn't do. And I think for a lot of players, I think it's happened with you see Larry Bird and Magic Johnson fail as coaches. I guess Larry did okay, but Magic didn't do great. It's often hard for a great player to become a great coach because they can't understand that other people can't do what they could do. Yeah. I think Coach Tuck had a little of that. Is it was hard for him at times to relate to guys who couldn't do what he could. Yeah. Um, but he was a dynamite motivator and a, a 
brilliant tactician and he got an incredible coaching staff together and uh, had enough good pieces on the, on the table to, and moved them around in the right positions to, to get the most out of us. Great senior year. So yeah. Great spring. Yeah. Um, all right, Daniel. So I want to get to the book recommendation you brought in for us. Oh, yeah. Let's hear it. Yeah. So, you know, you asked me to think a little bit about favorite books along the way, and I got a couple bookshelves in my house. Um, quick update, though. I said I hadn't read a book since, or, you know, until like my junior year in college. After that, I've become a pretty devoted reader. So I've, I've self-styled, I guess. But uh, I read a book called Sex, Death, and Fly Fishing, and it mm. kind of opened my eyes to like, oh, this reading stuff is pretty cool. <laughs> and you can learn some stuff and have some fun experiences. And as Mr. Christian says, it's living. Um, you know, it, it's always there and, and alive. Um, and there's a ton of great books I've read along the way. I'm, I love J.R. Tolkien stuff. And um, uh, there's a great book by a guy, Rick Bragg, All Over But the Shouting, um, Fool on the Hill, A Confederacy of Dunces by John Kennedy Toole. Um, I'm, I'm a David Sedaris guy. I love everything Malcolm Gladwell writes. David Foster Wallace is a, is a genius in my opinion. So I've got like a broad taste that covers a lot of, um, a lot of uh, uh, territory. But I think my number one guy, my number one writer is a guy named Tom Robbins. Um, I'm gonna hold him up here to the camera. This book is called Jitterbug Perfume. You can see that the, uh, it's held together by a rubber band. Um, the, the cover and the back cover are tattered and, and fallen apart. And that's because it's the only book I've read three times. And um, to me, Tom Robbins is kind of a reclusive guy, lives outside of Seattle, writes these kind of wacky, um, fantastic kind of uh, stories and, and novels, all novels, about people wandering through time and space and figuring out their own, um, their own self-identity and worth. Um, and the stories are cool and the characters are wild and their names are fantastic. But I just love the way he writes. Hmm. His way with a sentence is incredible. And I'm told that he doesn't actually do any editing, but he will work on a sentence until it's finished. And as soon as it's finished, he puts a period on it. And then it's done. That sentence is in the bank. Never goes back to it. Never goes back to it. And it still reads pretty, it still obviously reads well. It reads fantastically. Hmm. And, and he goes on these long diatribes and, and these wonderful sort of colorful things. And he just has a flair with language and, and imagery and, and words. And it's, it's just fun to read. And I couldn't even tell you really what Jitterbug Perfume is about. But I can tell you that I've loved reading it three different times. Wow. And it's at different points in life. And, and um, anytime I'm feeling a little off or a little bit out of sorts reading a book like that really helps ground me and so is, um, it, is it about a single character is it about a group of people there's a bunch of characters in a bunch of different uh times in life and there's a little time travel involved there's hmm. some perfume involved uh there's a there's a, a couple demigods involved oh wow yeah and it but it the way he writes you don't it doesn't sound weird when he writes it it's not it's not a fantastic thing like a um like a sci-fi or like a tolkien story it's it it feels relatively normal for someone just to travel back in time to you know meet their previous spouse or a, a king from the middle ages or something like that it, it's wonderful and fun and has some poignant things um this is a habit i've learned from mr christian but you can see i've sort of underlined stuff and circled words and and found oops, sorry annotation yeah i've annotated it along the way so that it's um you know, it's, it's working with me or I'm working with it. And it's just fun kind of stuff that I really enjoy. Is there, any, is there anything in there that you, you can share that you've annotated that is uh, specific at all? Or you know, I, it... di I did not come prepared with a quote. 
uh, I wish I had now. I well, will say he has. Well, now a, I'm interested in this book. <laughs> he has a line in. Uh, it might be in this book or one of his others. I'm not even sure, but it's something about never underestimate the value of a well-made taco and a cold bottle of beer. <laughs> I think that's just a pretty good credo for life. Yeah. Um, wow. But I, as as my homework assignment, I will find you a couple passages from here to to check out. Have you read any Jack Kerouac at all, on the road or any of the? Yeah, I listen to On the Road. I do a lot of audio podcasts or audio books rather. And I didn't quite get into it. I liked it. It was interesting. And I could kind of see how as a generational piece it was important. But it didn't, I didn't connect with it. Kind of sounds similar when you talk about like the spontaneous writing and the kind of just writing from your subconscious, your unconscious yeah. and not really editing too much. It reminded me of Kerouac a little bit. Because this is all stream of consciousness, right? It's just kind of one... Pretty much. I mean, I think he went back to edit it, but it's yeah. it reads similar to how you're describing this book in that it's kind of just his thoughts, his impressions, and yeah. it doesn't seem like he went back to change anything. It's kind of <laughs> just his, which is, I agree, it's interesting to read that yeah. type of writing. Um, even if you don't, you're not really sure like what the point of it or what it's really all about, right. it's real in some ways. That's, you know, that's something Mr. Holly and Mr. Christian talk about a lot. Like the book isn't meant necessarily to answer the questions. It's meant to raise the questions. It's meant to get you thinking. Um, and I think that's what great writers do is they get you thinking and get you wondering and questioning. And um, I think Tom Robbins does it in his novels as well as Malcolm Gladwell does it in his think pieces and sociological um, things. So it's, it's, he's been a, a, a good friend of mine, Tom Robbins, for Love it. many years. I think and he's got about a dozen novels. And Gladwell, you usually do the podcast or do you do his audio books? I get anything he puts out, I get a hold of. Really? He has a new one out called The Bomber Mafia. Which I've seen they, that. And they did it first as an audio book. And most audio books, it's just a, a speaker reading the, the text, which is fine. And, and I still enjoy that. You know, if you're going for a long bike ride, uh, audio book's a great companion. Um, but for The Bomber Mafia, they did it more as performative art. So there's sound effects. And when they could, That's they cool. had real audio of the people quoted in it. And it, it really brings it to life in a way that a, an actual book can't. Yeah. Um, on the flip side of that, I just uh, listened to a great Civil War historical uh, novel called um, Killer Angels. It's about the battle at Gettysburg and Pickett's Last Charge. Um, Coach Holly again turned me on to that. Um, and I did the audio book of that. At the same time, my dad was reading the hardcover book. And he said in the hardcover book, there's all these maps and diagrams and you kind of miss that because you can't, I have a hard time picturing what Pickett's charge looked like, but he's looking at the map. Yep. He saw the line they took and the, the hill they were being shot out from. And yeah, so I think there's trade-offs between the two mediums and some things can come alive in that and some you might miss a part. Totally agree with that. That's what I was saying about McConaughey's book too. Is Greenlight. I'm sure you've read that, all his little notes and stuff yeah. that, that you might miss if you're doing the audio book. Yeah. Which, um, that's, that's a great one. Greenlights? Yeah, Greenlights. Yeah. Yeah, David Foster Wallace is notorious in his writing for having enormous footnotes, ones that go on for pages. Yeah. And when you do the audiobook, they had to figure out a way to differentiate between the real text and the footnote. So what he does is he reads it in a different voice. <laughs> it's like the, the normal text is in a little deeper voice and the footnote is in a little higher voice. <laughs> that guy is, you really have to be on your game if you're reading oh, David man. Foster Wallace. Have you ever listened to, he did a commencement speech at Kenyon College called Sh This Is Water. Show it to all my classes all the time. I like you even more, Jake. Yep, this Good is water. Good for you. It's a, it's a keeper. That is a keeper. An Infinite Jest might be a little bit. Have you read that? Yeah. I listened to it, actually. And that was a work, it was work to listen to. Yeah. 
Um, I have not read it yet. I'm, brace I'm, yourself. I mean, it is like a... You need a summer. <laughs> yeah, it's a fight. You need a summer van life excursion <laughs> exactly, for that. Exactly. Well, um, I've got a good one for sale if you ever need a van. <laughs> <laughs> Might be interested. Deal. You got a deal. Well, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. It's been a great conversation. It's great to be back here in the studio. So um, appreciate it. Thank you, Cesare. And uh, good stuff. Yeah, my pleasure. This was a lot of fun. Thanks for having me. For sure. All right. Awesome.